0: Good afternoon and welcome back to the Sue Jeffers Show. I'm Colin Wilkinson filling in for Sue as she is up in Duluth as part of the uh, GOP convention. Uh, The latest news I heard is they've gone through three ballots for the governor and haven't got a a decision yet. And there's a rumor that they're not going to go for a fourth. That's only a rumor. Don't even know. But that's the latest from there. Meanwhile, Housley and Newberger got endorsed, and good luck to them both. They both are much better selections than the other side's pick. And uh, as for the Democrats picking a governor, they may not succeed. I don't really know. If you have any commentary about the conventions or who our new rulers are going to be, feel free to give us a call at 651-989-5855. The discussion today is basically about the bureaucratic state, the administrative state, uh, the idea that, you know... We can't be trusted to live our lives, so a whole bunch of people are going to be hired by the uh, government to uh, run it for us. That's where we're at. Um, I don't know if anybody. uh, Alex de Tocqueville is a great French writer who traveled through America about 1830 and wrote a tremendous book called Democracy in America that every American should take a look at. You don't necessarily have to read it. It's two volumes long. But... In the second volume where he talks about where America can go off the rails, he spoke about how chances are that the journey that America will develop, because back then everybody knew republics didn't last long, would be basically based on uh, the idea of protection and security to be delivered by a beneficent government that would swaddle all of us Americans with uh, a nice life that has very little uh, freedom in it but it feels good and uh he wrote it much better than i'm paraphrasing it right now but he said it would be the um unintended consequence of the way the american people that he saw in 1830 would react to life and yes people need help um Back in those days, of course, people counted on uh, the social institutions that were not government. Government was, quote, a last resort. And, of course, under the Constitution, the government should not be helping individuals or groups. Everything the government should do is something that is acceptable and useful and needed by everybody, 100% of us. Otherwise, it should be left to a smaller and lower level of government, all the way down to the townships, towns, and cities where they would make these decisions. Well, that's... That's where we're off the rails, folks. We've uh, delegated way too much of our freedom to various levels of government, all the way up to the feds, and the feds, of course, have, uh, you know, decided that they can tell us where we go to the bathroom, uh, what we can do about stealing metal copper pipes. That's one of our Senator Kobachar's, uh accomplishments, you know. Stealing copper is a crime, and uh, most crime is supposed to be done dealt with at the state and local level, but... Stealing copper from ice rink was enough to make uh, Senator Klobuchar write a federal law. So now there's a federal component to stealing metal. Um, this is how you get a expansive government doing goofy things. And who knows how much money is actually spent on Miss Klobuchar's uh, initiative. She doesn't know either. We'll just know that more money is being spent in a non-constitutional way. And she did it to get votes, and it looked like she's doing something. Um She's been referred to as a senator of small things for a reason, because all she really does is stuff to make her look good for whoever. Um, we all know the only reason she was elected is because of name recognition. So I just as soon not refer to her as Senator Amy Klobuchar. I try to muddy the waters a little bit by referring to her to her as Senator Aimless Klobknocker. Go ahead and do the same thing. Um you can tell as an ex-DFLer and a freedom person that I am truly worried and upset with the Democrat Party. Uh, at least a good slice of them, perhaps as many as a third, truly do want the Republic to fall to be re- re- replaced by some kind of socialist organizational government. Uh, socialism doesn't work. And I know a lot of people think it does, but if you look into the, stu- uh, the subject at all, you'll realize that Universal political socialism, which is what we're talking about, something that is for everybody, doesn't work. I actually have an experience with a form of socialism that isn't universal. It's very private, and they don't allow just anybody to join versus the politicians want everybody to join. And this form of socialism is over a a thousand years old. It's called uh, Christian monasticism, you know, living in a monastery. Monks are socialists. They They have a Ideology they all believe in fervently, Christianity, and they have pooled all their resources together into their organization to grow the wealth of their organization. It works great for small groups. The minute you try to force everybody into it and force people to adopt ideologies that they don't agree with, it fails, which is why political, universal socialism will not work. Karl Marx is wrong. He called it scientific socialism. What it is is scientific deadbeatism. It's a way to justify people who don't want to work getting paid not to work in the name of justice. Uh, If you look into the life of Karl Marx at all, you'll find out he was a world class deadbeat. He lived off his folks till his folks got tired of it. He lived off of Fred Engels all the rest of his life. He sponged off of everybody. His personal life was pretty degenerate. Um, He had a maid. He went and knocked her up and then repudiated the child. You know, all kinds of crap. He didn't like to take baths. The guy stunk, right? Why would you want a leader like that? But many, many people do. And why? Because he's offering them something. You know, when you get back down to it, one of the parts of politics and the corrupt part of politics is offering a voter something that you can't deliver, but get the voter to believe that you can. So vote for the Democrats, and one day all your bills will be paid, your refrigerator will always be full, and when you get sick, you can go to the hospital and get fixed for nothing. Free college education. Well, folks, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And as long as there are people out there who are trying to uh talk the voters into voting for this stuff, they've got themselves a free road to power. And, of course, they run the education system. And so the education system has been telling people that the socialized method of organizing an economy is the most efficient, even though we have over 150 years of evidence proving that it does not. The latest example, of course, is Venezuela. And, of course, the general uh, result from those folks is, well, Venezuela didn't do it well. Well, let me have news for you first. There's a place that used to be called East Germany. And if there was ever a tribe of people who were developed for socialism, is the East Germans. Before they were the East Germans, they were the Prussians. The Prussian government ran them like a regiment. Then they became communist. Well, guess what? The East Germans got rid of communism and as soon as they could. And one of the reasons why is because the economy stunk. It was horrible. Turns out over half the people of East Germany were on the payroll of the secret police. So when you pay people to sit around and snoop on their neighbors, they're not building things. This is the kind of insanity that a bureaucratic state brings about. You go and talk to a government employee in America, and yes, they are not the Stasi, and yes, they are not the evil commies, but they truly believe sitting in an office and writing reports and issuing papers and uh, delivering the reports to the politicians is productive labor. Yes, gathering knowledge and disseminating knowledge is productive labor, but bureaucratic reports, most of them do not get read. Most of them do not get very heavily uh, uh, disseminated. The politicians, perhaps, you know, you as a citizen should go down to any government office and look in their archive in the basement. You'll see row on row and row of reports written by people dealing with, quote, important topics, and nobody reads them. And this is called, you know, good government. People, we are broke. We cannot afford this. I'm trying to give you the warning right now, right, the the Warning signs have been out there for about three generations, but we are to the point where we have basically bonded us and our children for about seven generations to pay off this $21 trillion debt. Then you got the $200 trillion unfunded obligations, things like uh, we taxpayers are paying all the pensions for all the railroad workers in America, and we've been doing that since 1925. It was a union settlement to make life easier for the railroads. This is one of those uh, corporate subsidies that the left likes to talk about, but they also want to save these pensions for the good old railroad workers because a lot of them were good uh, Democrat votes. I think somebody's trying to call in. We'll see what we have here. Hello, and welcome to the Sue Jeffers Show.
1: Hello, this is K.W. from the great city of Minneapolis. Oh, hello, Uh, K.W., I just want to piggyback on something that you said uh, a few seconds ago about how politicians make you know make all these promises just to, just to get people to vote, then they don't follow through on them. Right? Um, were you referring to the um, we're going to replace and repeal Obamacare? Were you referring to the GOP when they said we're going to make government smaller? Are those the type of things that you were talking about?
0: Oh, yes. Um, My list is rather long before I get to those, but you're right. The Republicans, in many ways, are just as guilty of making these promises as the uh, Democrats. They often like to talk in terms of security versus the Democrats like to talk in terms of general welfare and social justice. But in the end, both sets have programs that they want to push that expand the expenses of government and the spending of government. And none of them really seem to be bringing a return on the investment of the taxpayers. Um, we can probably disagree about which uh, set of programs and uh, organizations that we don't like, but I truly am upset with what happened with schools, right? I'm a natural educator, and a lot of people in high school thought I was going to end up being a teacher, but I left high school hating the public school system, and when I got to college, I realized they wanted one-third of my credit hours for learning how to be a teacher. One of the first classes so, uh, they wanted me to take was a thing called Child and Adolescent Development, you know, credit hours cost money, and I just came from a family of eight kids. I did not need to sit around for four months to talk about child and adolescent development. I just lived through 18 years of it. This is the well, kind know, of stuff we get.
1: Well, you know, I think I think Horace Mann said it best. Education, public education is the best invention by man, and, and uh, I really appreciate public edu- education, but there are... There were uh, advocates out there who want to destroy public education, and uh, and I think that's a travesty. You um, know, uh, uh, I grew up in Georgia, okay, and now I'm and now I'm coming to understanding that Georgia had a very good public education system. Uh, I learned a lot of things in school that, you know, at the time I thought I thought it was nonsense, but now as I've gotten older, I realized that hey, I received a quality public education because I was invested in it.
0: Well, that's all true, and uh you know there's been a decline in publication in you know, education over the last thirty forty years that is measurable, but um Horace Mann also said that the goal of the public education system was to make willing workers. He was not really interested in having fully activated citizens he wanted people who were educated enough to be productive but not educated so much as they would be disruptive and uh
1: well, I think I think he tried to model that after uh, one of the Scandinavian countries because he saw how well their society was educated and he wanted the American society to be as well as educated because uh, educated and educated a society is a prosperous society.
0: Education is very necessary for developing the wealth of a society. And, by the way, the uh, country that we use as our model for the public education system, Horace Mann and Dewey and the gang, was the Prussian education system. And uh, I don't I know don't if you know about Prussia, Prussia, but when you're born in Prussia, you're assigned to your regiment.
1: I don't think it was Prussia. I think it was uh, either Finland or Sweden. Or uh, you know, I could be wrong. You know, that, 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 that's a product of my public education.
0: Sure. Well, Finland actually has a great public education system, and right now they have uh, some great innovations that seem to be working out a lot. And I wish we would look to Finland a lot more for educational examples. I also think we should be looking to some of the Asian countries. If you look at the world uh, table of educated students, right now we're near the bottom. Korea is at the top, and I'm not sure I want the regimentation that the Korean school district system has, but we're doing something wrong. We're paying way too much for not enough.
1: Please, sir, could I ask you just one other question? Sure. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's about the hurricane that had down uh, in Puerto Rico. You know, I've been watching and reading articles lately, and it seems like everybody want to blame, blame President uh, Trump. I didn't vote for him, but I do like Trump. But here's my thing right here. Uh, they want to blame Trump, but has anybody done any research to say, where are the private donations? What other countries are stepping up to the plate to make donations to Puerto Rico? You know? Uh, like Hurricane Katrina, I mean, people just pouring out the woodwork making donations, and now, I mean, it, you know, are people just not donating money to Puerto Rico, or is it just a government failure to not get the infrastructure at least somewhat back on track?
0: I don't really know about the amount of donations to Puerto Rico, and you're right, they probably didn't get as much support as Texas did. I personally think the biggest problem in Puerto Rico is that their uh, their electrical utility was a function of the Puerto Rican government. And as such, it did not have a good recovery at all for when the disaster happened. And most public utilities have a, a, a agreement among themselves where when a disaster comes, uh, utility workers from around the country are transferred down to where the disaster is and helps it out but the uh, utility in Puerto Rico was in such bad shape fiscally and financially, you know, they, they ran up huge debts. It's, it's a mess, right? Puerto Rico has definitely got a governmental expense issue. They were, they were in technical bankruptcy, you see, before the hurricane. But the fact of the matter is, because their uh, utility was so screwed up, they did not renew the exchange agreements with the other utilities of the rest of the country. And so they didn't have anybody even... Uh, notified, you know, like Florida Power and Light, saying, get ready to go to Puerto Rico. In the end, uh, the out-of-state help, out-of-Puerto Rico help, took at least an extra six weeks just because of this. Um, If you want to look into the history of Puerto Rico, look up what uh, Rexford Tugwell, uh, FDR's representative to Puerto Rico, did to him.
1: It it seemed like that, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but it it seemed like that the, the media, you know, and... I consider myself left of center, extreme left and center. Right. But it seems like the media, for some reason, I mean, they just hate Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I just don't get it, you know.
0: Donald Trump is not part of the organizational grouping that I've been describing this whole show, right? He is aware of it because he's had to pay him off for years. The first time I ever read about Donald Trump, he is at a DFL fundraising dinner in 1968 or thereabout with his dad. And the two of them wrote a check to $15,000 for some New York alderman's campaign. You know, that they, he knows about it.
1: The one thing I observed about Donald Trump is that if you work with him, give him a legitimate cost-saving idea i think you're running with it because he want to be popular and he want to be reelected. right <laughs> but, and but he's, he's also like, has uh, the, the businessman's democrats attitude of go efficiency
0: go sorry go ahead kw I, I talk too much
1: but you know it's it like the uh us democrats don't want to go to the table you know we can get something in the conference with trump because he wants victories he want to look good in everybody's eyes and and uh, you know uh, he uh, will make a deal if it's a good deal
0: he will. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, one of Ivanka's pets is uh, she wants uh, uh, child care leave for uh, families. I personally think this is a bad idea. But if the Democrats said, yes, we're going to work across the aisle the way the Republicans always talk about working across the aisle, they could. But the Democrats, particularly Schumer at the uh, senatorial level, says we're not doing anything and they're stonewalling everything. And it's unfortunate, but uh, that's politics. Well, thank you
1: for listening to me and
0: a uh, good show. Oh, thank you for calling in, KW. You're always a good call and uh, now it's time to take a break and remember call six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. And welcome back to the Sue Jeffers Show. Uh, me and KW went a little bit long last break and I have Dave online who wants to talk about energy, so we'll start now and if he wants to stay over the break and we got a good topic, we'll see what we can do. Laura, Dave.
2: Hi, Calling. I think you do a wonderful job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh this is a little political, I think that's your area, but uh, I work in the area of cold fusion. You don't hear much about it today. Have you have you heard of that? I think have you not?
0: I'm somewhat familiar with cold fusion. I heard there's some kind of progress being made. What can you say?
2: Yeah, uh, you don't hear. About, I can say you don't hear much about it today. But it goes back to 1989. It's been 29 years. It uh, was discovered in Utah, researched, and announced. And uh, when it was announced, it was very controversial. Uh, fusion of hydrogen and helium at room temperature instead of the energy of the sun and hydrogen bombs is not supposed to happen, according to most physicists. Right. But it, it, there was something going on in this special arrangement of material, electrodes and metals and so on. And
0: uh, Are you working on this project?
2: I am not. Uh, yeah, I work. I'm a theorist. I don't have a way of doing it in the laboratory, but I have spent twenty thousand hours in the research, mostly in the 1990s. <clears throat> it was published articles, so uh, but I, I have a lot of uh, respect for the people who do work in this worldwide scientists uh, who, uh I say, know the way around the nucleus of an atom. I there are others who just should know better, and they're contra, they, they they're more opposed to it. If you can believe this, that when this came out, it was so uh, controversial. I could say the science is so unusual.
0: But well, it would break a lot of scientific paradigms. I understand they made some kind of progress on hot fusion, a, a smaller reactor chamber. But I really don't know if anybody's made any breakthroughs on the cold fusion. Have, uh, Personally, I think word. thorium fission is the way to go. Pardon me? Thorium fission reactions is oh, a good way to go. Well,
2: that's one way to look at it. But, uh... Uh, but just to give a history, Greenpeace Sierra Club and Rocky Mountain Institute all uh, oppose this as officially.
0: Well, they're they're environmentalists' right? they they're opposed to everything, right? If you listen to the environmental movement, especially the deep green component of the environmental movement, yeah. we're supposed to be living the way we're living in 1610, and I'm yeah. not gonna.
2: But this is something that's sad. I don't. I haven't kept up. I all well, to admit the, the latest development, but. Early on, the United States Department of Energy and the USPTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, stood against this. Now, these are supposed to be agencies that are not political as such. I have to deal with science and and then,
0: and, yeah, but their government functions, so of course they 're political, and uh the Department of Energy has been a boondoggle from day one and if sure. they were involved in it at all, I would say that definitely cold fusion wouldn 't work. The fact that they don 't like cold fusion is kind of a vote in favor on my side yeah. but the patent
2: office uh, ought to be well they 've improved since then, I know what they were originally, uh, but uh, they 're to evaluate the the uh, uh, the uh merits of a of an application scientifically and so on,
0: uh, oh yeah, well if we had a working fusion reaction, we would have solved most of the energy needs for the next probably centuries, you know, maybe millenniums might get us to space yeah, it's, it's
2: going to uh, work it's going to work it's it's real it hasn't I know it's been a long time twenty nine years let me give you a couple quick quotes quotes, and then I'll let you go here all right Some uh, scientists who uh uh One is uh, the late uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, author, futurist, engineer right. fellow at Charles King's College, London. He said this, and he studied this, the neglect of cold fusion is one of the biggest scandals in the history of science. Uh, another author of the book, Excess uh, Heat, Why Cold Fusion Research Prevailed, said a similar thing, no, Charles Burnett, no cover-up. A scientific truth like this has happened before. It's a profound scandal in American science. Now, one one quote you might have particular interest, he says this, and I'll give you the author in a second, in regard to cold fusion, it would be advisable for the scientific community to brace itself for the fallout that will be coming soon.
0: What well, definitely it, so it would now? be a paradigm shift. Who said yeah. that? What's that? Who said that?
2: Brian Josephson, who was a Nobel Prize winner in physics in 1973.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad you called in about this, Dave. It is definitely a subject that I should have to uh, look into further. One more
2: sentence for you real quick. All right. It says this, quote, The intelligent man is uh, is always open to new ideas. In fact, he looks for them. That comes from the Bible, Proverbs 1815.
0: That's true, but the government doesn't doesn't believe that. You know that.
2: Science looks for new ideas. They don't. They don't uh, uh, tear it apart and destroy it uh, before they have a chance to get to first base. So thanks for the show. I love what you're doing, and I'll look, continue to listen.
0: Well, thank you, Dave, and keep listening. And uh, we have to go on break now. But I'm glad you called in. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Sue Jeffers Show. I'm Colin Wilkinson filling in for Sue Jeffers. Uh, she is up at the uh, Republican Convention uh, doing what Sue does well, good and loud, and hooray for that. And uh, so here we are to uh, discuss the situation from the radio station on her behalf. Uh, she, of course, is not endorsing everything that comes out of my mouth. And uh, as long as I keep it G, she'll be happy. So here we are. Dave did make a couple of interesting points in this call, basically about... Uh, the Patent Office and whatnot being against something new. Well, government by definition is defending the status quo versus uh, people who are trying to be creative and look at the future and come in with new inventions and whatnot. In fact, mentioning the Patent Office, the uh, man in charge of the Patent Office in about 1895 or thereabout issued a statement saying, we should close the Patent Office because everything has been invented, which kind of shows you the, uh, the screwiness of, Government thinking, because all they can think of is if we haven't thought of it, it's not being thought of. And uh, as a libertarian, I'll tell you the patent issue is uh, fascinating, and I'm on both sides of it. But uh, I could see why the constitutional uh, founders wrote the patent office into the Constitution, but it may have to be looked at again. But it does demonstrate that government has a hard time with paradigms, you know, basically habits of thought that arrange for how things happen uh, in your life. Uh, the Structure of Scientific Resolutions is a great book from my uh, college days by a guy named Kuhn. And it basically talks about how scientists and other people will stand by their preconceived and accepted theory in the face of every evidence until it becomes so overwhelming it just changes everything. I studied geology and uh, plate tectonics did that to geology in the 1960s. Uh, Albert Einstein did it to physics in the uh, 1910s. Um, Here's a paradigm shift for us to think about the uh, the bureaucracy, the powers that be, the Metropolitan Council think they have the best way to design the future of the Twin Cities. Their uh, their big plan twenty thirty or twenty forty or twenty infinity, whatever they call it, and it is based on basically nineteenth century technology and old old paradigms. Um, this railroad. Idea, You know, they have 21 planned railroad lines in the uh, in the program, and it's going to come out from the central hubs like spokes on a bicycle wheel. And they're calling this a great advantage forward. Well, this is something that our ancestors had, and they got rid of it because it didn't work. Now, here is a project that we should consider building, and it's a big project, and it keep all the politicians discussing and happy for a long time. But let's be honest. Minneapolis St. Paul needs a new airport. Uh, They've had two occasions in the last 40 years to build a new airport and the politicians couldn't figure out how to do it without keeping their piece of the action and so... Uh, we didn't build the one in Ham Lake in a swamp, which is a dumb idea. And that money went and built Dallas-Fort Worth. And then uh, in the 1990s, uh, they decided to build it in the Vermilion River Valley, a pretty part of Dakota County. And it turned into a big fight because, of course, they're not thinking right. And the money went to build New Stapleton, which is a good thing. Since old Stapleton had one plane crash a decade, New Stapleton is an improvement. But back to the main point. In 1968, Buckminster Fuller, the polymath genius, told the people of New York that their city was obsolete. He did it on the stage of the uh, uh Carnegie Hall. He was there to talk about the future of New York, and he said, your future is over. And the reason why is because New York is New York. New York is the Big Apple. New York is America's front door because of the ocean trade and transport. In the era of ocean transport, New York was the natural front door to America. We're now in the air age, folks, and as Buckminster Fuller told the people of New York in 1968, America's new front door is the largest city closest to the North Pole. Want to guess where that is? I have a theory. So what we need is a big airport north of the Twin Cities, pretty far north, because you want to build this thing as big as Dallas-Fort Worth, and with the modern airplane technology with their 7,000-mile fuel radius, We can basically be one airplane flight away from about two-thirds of the population of the world. Most of Asia, India, uh, north of New Delhi. South India, no. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, no. But we can get to China. We can get to Hong Kong. We have to take a second hop to Singapore. Singapore. See all of Asia. We can see all of the old Soviet Union. We can get into Africa as far as Nairobi and Lagos. We can go all the way down to Rio de Janeiro. One flight out of Minneapolis. We need a new airport. We are the new front door to America. All these idiots running around here talking about how they want more people to come to Minnesota and discover how great we are and how we're going to have this new bold north program to get everybody all whipped up into coming to Minnesota. Guess what? They want to come. They're already doing it. Wander around Minneapolis, you'll see a whole lot of people from out of this country visiting Minneapolis. We are now one of the major financial hubs of the country because of our position on the polar route. Everything's ready to go and grow, except for we need a new airport. And the idiots who are supposed to be making a better and brighter Minneapolis don't even talk about airports. They do want to keep the old airport for all the good downtown click reasons and go ahead, keep it. We need it. We need a intercontinental airport, big one, north of town, so we can take advantage of the polar route. And we will have prosperity, communications, people from all over the world coming to wonderful Minnesota to go and interact with America and Minnesota. And the politicians—do they even know about this? Do they even talk about this? It probably the topic was brought up in the seven in the eighteen. 1980s and 70s. 70s. Ham Lake. The first time around, my father invented this airport. Designed this airport. Showed it to a bunch of politicians. They all go, hey, that's great. Nothing happened. Instead, the fight was over how we were going to keep the airport in Richfield. Once again, the Richfield Airport is a good airport. We need a bigger one. When we built the Richfield Airport, we let the St. Paul Airport stay behind. And 3M was very grateful. But, The cost that we're spending on these stupid light rails would be the money to build this giant airport. And yes, it'd be kind of far out of town. So you might as well build a train line to bring you from the airport to downtown. And here's a wrinkle. We drive the train to downtown underground so it ends the... End of the airplane, a train ride from the airport is 200 feet below Nicollet Mall, and then they get out of the train, go up the escalator, and they're in downtown Minneapolis. This is the kind of thinking that you're not going to get out of the Metropolitan Council or any other governmental organization because it's creative, it's cutting edge, it's beyond the pale, it's not status quo. Meanwhile, we're supposed to be satisfied with $2 billion plus to build a light rail line to Eden Prairie. And in order to, quote, save money, the uh, north end of the line that was supposed to go into North Minneapolis so the people in North Minneapolis could go to Eden Prairie and get the good jobs got cut out of the contract because they couldn't afford it. Instead, we're building all this silly crap from basically 394 South and West. Don't need it. It's not efficient. It's stupid. We got better things to do with our money. The state's broke. We don't have to build that airport. In the end, i like to see a private business build the darn thing. But we have to realize that the people we are picking to lead our government and to lead our state are absolutely clueless about what we really need to do to solve our issues. Because if they did have a clue, they'd quit taxing us so much. They'd quit bossing us around so much. They'd leave us free to be what we were when Minnesota was a free state, which is incredibly creative and entrepreneurial, and we still are. We just got to get the government out of our way. And I hope the Republicans start doing what they're promising. Because like KW mentioned, they often don't. So I'm not telling you to go out and lobby for a new airport. I'd recommend it. I'm not telling you to go out there and uh, try to convince the politicians that this is going to happen. Because it won't. The best thing you can do right now is to convince your politicians in the coming uh election campaign this summer is that what we're doing is wrong Every, not working it's inefficient it's expensive it's stupid and we really should think twice about how we're managing our government i'm going to take a break right now cuz i have uh, i'm going to talk about a, another issue that is of use to the uh, future of minnesota and that is legalizing marijuana So if you want to talk about that, give us a call at 651-989-5855 after this break. Hello again, and welcome back to the Sue Jeffers Show. I'm Colin Wilkinson filling in for Sue as she is up in uh, Duluth at the convention. Uh, Anybody want to call in from the convention with news, you're more than welcome. Call us at 651-989-5855 in the last few minutes of the show. Uh, I haven't heard anything since the last time I announced that there was a rumor that they, after three... um, uh, votes, three ballots for the Republican uh, endorsement for governor. They may not do a fourth. I don't know any more than I said before, so we'll just have to wait and see. Meanwhile, um I mentioned that we we're gonna discuss uh legalizing marijuana because the Democrats are gonna jump on this issue this summer and they hope to write it all the way into the State House. And I think the Republicans should give a good second and third look to what is going on with this issue and why they are feeling so um against the idea of re-legalizing marijuana. I use the term re because it was completely legal until 1937. So let's go back and take a look at the history. 1936, that was uh, Roosevelt's second election. He won it by the biggest landslide in history. Uh, Reagan's second election, where he won 49 states, may have beat it, but it was an incredibly large win for Roosevelt. Uh, also, the Democrats had the largest uh, percentage of congressional seats of any time in their history after the election of 36. I believe at the time there were something like 60 Republican representatives in the House and maybe a dozen or two senators. So what happened to make this situation come about? Well, the Depression was on and a lot of Mexicans are coming over the border looking for work. Uh, the redneck sheriffs of southern United States, the southern states, these are all Democrats at the time. These sheriffs are all Democrat sheriffs. Remember Boss Hogg from Doose a Hazard? That stereotype had a purpose, right? These sheriffs wanted to have a handle on the Mexicans. And the easy handle is because most Mexicans were carrying a bag of weed around because they couldn't afford to drink alcohol. Let's make it illegal. Then we can put them in the pokey. And that is the true motive for making marijuana illegal. Uh, they had to make this law go through under a form of a tax because it's hard to ban a plant because plants uh, reproduce themselves and live their lives without governmental functions at all. So, how do you ban a plant? Well, they decided to tax it out of existence. They came up with the law. Uh, they taught the Republicans into going along with it because they told them that, you know, marijuana makes you crazy and then you're going to stab everybody, you know, reefer madness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, the law got passed. By the way, one of the big opponents to making this law uh, was the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy wanted a domestic supply of rope. Up until the passage of this law, we had something like 4 million acres in industrial hemp. And a lot of people will tell you hemp and uh, marijuana are two different plants. They're not. They're just breeds like dogs. But anyhow, the Navy wanted to keep the rope supply. The politicians said, don't worry. We're going to do this for our reasons. And you can always get rope from the Philippines. Ha ha. So. They passed the law. They convinced the Republicans they're doing it for mental health issues. Uh, the old idea of making a vice into a crime is unconstitutional and stupid. But they did it. And they did it for racist reasons. Fast forward to now. Marijuana will be legalized across this country in the next 10 years or so. And the Democrats are going to get all the credit for it because the Republicans are so clueless, they think that if a law was on the books when Grandpa was around, it should be defended and kept. Well, no, there's a lot of bad old laws on the books that got to go. This is one of them. We will lose the Democrat, the race for governor in Minnesota to the Democrat if the Democrat jumps on this issue and they all said they're going to. All the Republican candidates are against even considering it, but they better think twice because this may be the deal breaker that can get us into the cities. If the Republican Party had the nerve to come out and come out in favor of legalizing marijuana and not tying it to a big tax like you know the Democrats will, right? When they legalize marijuana, you're going to pay – it'll make the alcohol tax look small when they're done. But the whole point here is if the Republicans leap ahead of this – They probably will win a good chunk of the city vote, which is the last stronghold of the DFL. The DFL have lost the rurals and the Iron Range because of the environmentalists taking over the party. Here's a chance to carve a hole in the city vote. I really think the Republicans should do this. I, of course, am a libertarian, and I have problems with the whole drug war. But among other things, um, back to the bureaucracy – there are a lot of uh, cop salaries, police salaries, uh, judge salaries, probation salaries paid for by the drug war, and politics, uh, bureaucrats, government employees. You know, protecting their job and salary is one of their motives. And I've met many rank and file police officers who are in favor of re-legalizing marijuana, but the higher up the hierarchy you go, up to the chiefs and the sheriffs, the more they're against it, and they're against it, I think, for budgetary reasons. Well, once again, we have too many rules, and we try to make too many things illegal. We have too many police. Yes, I am in favor of shrinking the police force. This is just one of many steps, but we've made too many human behaviors illegal, and we're paying too many police officers to enforce them. It's unjust, We're talking prison reform basically because we have a huge prison population and most of the people are in there for partying too hard. If you commit violence, partied or not, you should be going to prison, right? The real crimes are based on damage to people and their property. It's not based on damage to yourself. And what makes vice a damage is that you're not making yourself better. You're just sort of floating along enjoying the trip. So, if we made marijuana A legalized marijuana plank in the Republican Party platform, I think we turn this state bright, bright red all over the place, including the inner city. I don't think the Republicans have the wisdom, the vision, or the nerve to do this, and I really regret that. And I do believe that if Walls or whoever wins the Democrat governorship, they will be doing this like day one. So at a tactical level, consider it. At a constitutional level, study it. Why are we making our government so powerful that it can reach out into our garden and yank up our plants? It's dumb when you get down to it. And I know you're going to hear all the arguments about all the uh, things that will happen by people under the influence of stuff. But I got news for you, folks. About one-third of America is under the influence of something all the time. And it has been this case probably since the beginning of our country. If you go and look at the alcohol usage rates back in the first hundred years of this country, you'll be astounded. George Washington, in his first election, he spent almost a 100 pounds. And this is back when a one pound was an ounce of gold on election expenses. And 90% of that was buying drinks for voters. So... What are we talking about here? We're talking about control and craziness and a lot of people protecting their jobs and the people of America and Minnesota have one less freedom to use, abuse, or whatnot. Um, Right now, the big issue is the opioid crisis. Well, if you could go to the drugstore and buy the drug you wanted safely and protectively legal, we would have nearly as many ODs as we have. The problem, of course, is... This fentanyl stuff has become very easily available, and it's very useful to cut into other drugs to make the drugs you want to sell uh, whatever. Prince died of what he thought was Vicodin, but is actually Vicodin cut with fentanyl, and he ate too much, and it killed him. He has eaten the Vicodin, by the way, not because he is a party animal, but because his joints were shot from dancing all over the stage for 40 years. But the drug war killed him. And why? Because there's fentanyl that shouldn't have been in his Vicodin. We can go and sort this out one way or the other. We can have all kinds of regulation and control and you can't go to the store to buy your Sudafed. Or we can allow freedom, the free market, and let people do what they want to do themselves and also live by the consequences of their choice. Choice is real. I am pro-choice on everything, not just abortion. And I'm really not pro-choice on abortion. I think it's a bad choice to do it. And as a Christian, I think you've committed a mortal sin. But I will accept your right to do it as long as you don't demand that I use my money to pay for it. The biggest issue these people have is the fact that they want to get subsidized in their behavior that I disagree with. This is common across the board. It's not just Planned Parenthood. Back in 1998, I went and took apart the Minnesota state government. We were at that time giving almost 1,000 501c3 money, state government money, to support whatever charities they were doing. And it's not very well followed up. Uh, two years ago, this gentleman named uh, Davis went to jail because he took his state money to his 501c3 charity and misused it. He's not the only one, folks. In the end, we got to watch our government got to watch it close, and to watch it best, you shrink it because it's too darn big to watch now. You know, the idea that we're spending $46 billion plus in our budget when there's only five and a quarter million of us is insane. State of Wisconsin, next door, they have uh, several million more people than us, and their budget is $10 billion smaller. And you can tell me Wisconsin is hell on earth. I don't believe you. I think Wisconsin is doing fine. And, in fact, I believe their economics Economic growth is faster than ours. Minnesota is a rich state, right? We have resources all over the place. We have great agriculture. And why are we not growing faster than Wisconsin like we used to? I think the answer, of course, is the DFL. Scott Walker had to go and defeat a very strong Democrat machine in his state. He did it, and they hated it. And you heard about it all over the news. But the result is life in Wisconsin is improving at a better rate than life in Minnesota is improving. And the biggest difference I see is the marginal difference in the size of our government. And uh, this is where I get to insult uh, Governor Dayton, but all of his plans and programs failed. They weren't well thought out. They weren't too intelligent. And uh, we're supposed to be blamed for it because we, the GOP or the conservatives or the taxpayers, are not all in on whatever Democrat plan the governor thinks is best. And he will call you a name if you disagree with him. And this is not good for the political discourse of America. You know, we should be civilized in our discourse. We should treat each other well. Uh, The Internet is public space, and you should treat each other like it's a public space. You wouldn't walk up to anybody in downtown St. Paul and call them what you would call them on the Internet. Think about that. You know, in the end, you're putting yourself out there with your ideas and your statements to do what you want to do to further your life and your future and the life and the future of America and everybody else. So try to do it in a polite and sane manner and realize we're all in this together and we all should at least respect each other enough to say, I disagree with your ideas, but I'll stand up for your right to say them anywhere, anytime, because we should. Once again, America is exceptional because of liberty. And we should be for liberty everywhere, all the time, for everybody, no exceptions. And when we don't, we're failing the founders, we're failing the Constitution, and we're failing each other. So I'd like to end the show with a happy note that we do have a great future in front of us if we open our eyes and concentrate and cooperate in a voluntary method and less coercion. It's coercion, which is the heart of all government programs. It's the do it my way or else, fill out this form or else. That is what is hurting America. And that is what is hurting Minnesota. That is what is hurting me. It's what's hurting Sue. And it's hurting the Democrats, even though they won't admit it. So I'd like to leave you with the happy thought that we have a great future in front of us. We can be the new Big Apple if we want to be. We can be the front door to the world. And make a wonderful, happy Minnesota if we just remember the government is incompetent in doing this job. Thank you very much for listening to the Sue Jeffers Show. And I'm very grateful for Sue to let me do this. Uh, Life is good. What's the problem?